All right, well, we have a special treat tonight. I get to introduce uh, Dan Hamill. Um, Dan is going to open the word for us tonight, and I just wanted to introduce him as my... So I know, like, most people know him, but there's newer folks here at the church now, so I want to introduce him uh, for you. Dan is my brother-in-law, uh, and this is Karen, his wife, who's my sister, and this is Hudson, and he's a drummer. So he's the drummer of the... The only person in our family that has any musical ability so far, so... Uh, but I want to introduce Dan. Dan is pastoring a church up in Indianapolis. He came down uh, about a week ago down to Lexington to be here to rest uh, and recuperate and get some time off. And Dad asked him to teach, so he's going to teach. That's one of the things my dad does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I just want to tell you this. So um, I was probably right out of college when I met Dan, and I went to some Bible studies that Dan led. And you guys, uh, I mean, I'm not saying this because he's here. I love uh, being taught the Scripture by Dan. Uh, there's he's one of the people that I think I've learned the most from. Uh, he's in that group of those guys that I've learned a lot about the Word of God, and so I'm so excited to be here together as our bodies to receive the word of God from him. Uh, so let's welcome him, him tonight as he opens the word for us. They're going to be recording there and there. Oh, boy. Okay. I've got three audiences. This phone, that phone, and that one else. So um, it's an honor to be here. I'm glad to get introduced by Matt. Um, we got in town a few days ago and... When we got in town, I had a friend who wanted to come uh, meet me for lunch, and he said, let's grab a place downtown. Oh, you need me right here, more like this? Yeah, my turn up too. Okay. okay. I came from the back. Testing, testing. Ooh, here we go. How's that sounding, Matt Oatley? All right, we got some... I don't know what that means right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm going to grab lunch with a friend downtown, and as I was driving down there, we were actually eating at Zim's on Wednesday, I passed Rupp Arena, and I had this memory uh, just hit me from nine years ago. It was early December of 2011, and I had somehow or another acquired two tickets to the biggest game of the year for UK basketball. If you are big into UK basketball, you might remember 2011-2012 season as Anthony Davis, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. That's the year that we went on to win our eighth championship. And someone had given me two tickets. Uh, the University of North Carolina was coming to town. And uh, ESPN Game Day was going to be set up in, in Lexington. And I had these two tickets that combined were probably worth about $1,000 that someone had decided to give me. And so I thought, what do I do with these? Do I scalp them? Well, because they were a gift, I didn't feel right about that, but I would have loved to have just made $1,000 doing nothing. I'm my father-in-law's son. Um, <laughs> um, I thought to myself, you know what? I could ask my boss if he wants to come with me and try to curry favor with a person in authority over me. That would have been advantageous. I had a couple of roommates at the time, and I thought I could strengthen the bonds with one of my roommates. Uh, I had some non-believing friends in my life. I thought I could ask one of them and try to use this as an opportunity to um, strengthen gospel proclamation. Or I thought I could ask a guy who's the older brother of a very attractive, very godly, very hard to get young lady. 
and use this as an inroad into the family. So for the sake of securing godliness for my posterity, I asked Matt Henderson if he would go to that game with me. And any UK fan would, of course, say, yes, let's go to that game. So we go to the game. You might recall it as a game that was close the whole way through. It went down to the right wire. About 15 seconds, we were down 72 to 71. One of our athletes makes a bucket. We're up by one point. There's five seconds left. Carolina has the ball. They do a mid-range jump shot. And Anthony Davis soars like 12 feet in the air, swats that shot, grabs, grabs the ball, does a little outlet pass, and we win. And Rupp Arena went berserk. It was euphoria in that moment. And I had never experienced something quite like this before. I mean this in sincerity. Uh, Matt, who was just my friend at that time, he picked me up and he started twirling me in the air. And at first I thought, this is strange. And I thought, no, this feels right. <laughs> this feels right. When, uh, when he put me down and a stranger picked me up, <laughs> that, that felt inappropriate. But I was thinking about the power, somehow or another, that sports seem to have to, uh, to unite people. Now, people who are of different walks of life, different religions, entirely different worldviews, people who don't even know another person's name. When you are around people, no one forced you to, but you all end up wearing the exact, exact same color. When a ref makes a certain call that you don't like, there's this collective boo. There is a poor play, a collective groan. There's a score and a collective elation. And there's this thing that uh, unites people. And part of the love for sports is not just the entertainment for the person themselves. It's participation in something that draws you outside of simply yourself into a community of other people. And we all know that sports have the unique ability to unite people throughout an entire city or an entire region or an entire state. Um, you know, we did not have the Olympics this summer, but we have seen where sports can unite an entire nation uh, together. So we have that in our minds as something that certainly uh, can happen. But we have found ourselves in a unique cultural moment where our unity is... Uh, perhaps being more tried and tested than ever before. And it's not simply, of course, because we haven't had sports. Uh, we have been in a cultural moment in a, for our, our country, even across the globe, where there have been some things that have been dividing us. Now, at first, that's not the way it appeared to be. You might be able to go back in your mind to early, mid-March or so, and when everyone was uh, very uh, keenly interested in what was going to happen with the spread of this virus that people had never heard of before, there was unity that I cannot remember in at least the last two decades, not since the days following 9-11. Republicans and Democrats came together and they united across the aisle to put some incredible legislation through in just a matter of a few days. You have the CEOs of Rite Aid, of Walgreens, of Walmart pharmacies. They're all coming together. They're no longer competitors. They're now working together. You have the heads of Wells Fargo Bank and U.S. Bank and Citibank and Chase Bank, and they're all pooling their resources. It was a profound unity. But how long did that unity last? Two weeks? Three weeks? Until forces seemed to uh, bring about division. 
And we could easily talk about the themes of unity or division at a macro level. But I think we would be better served to talk about them at a more personal level. Of course, I don't know what each of y'all do for your profession, but having spoken to a lot of people in myriad different career paths, they shared about how how much division begun begun in the spring, moving into the summer, to surface in the workspace. How people used to interact with their, their co-workers, with their bosses, with their subordinates on almost a daily basis, and how there used to be relational deposits that um, resulted in trust and encouragement, camaraderie, uh, with a sense of, of working as a team. And then all of a sudden, you go two, three weeks without seeing each other, and there was this sense that we're going to do this, but before long, not being able to connect with one another in person, only having Zoom meetings, having a deterioration in the quality of our communication. Now it's just some emails here and there. Before long, there ended up being some frustration, some tension, And where there were gaps, it ended up just being a lot of people's experience that that gap was not filled with trust, but instead with suspicion. And there ended up being some conflict and even some hostility in uh, people's workspaces. We know that there ended up being some tension and some disunity in people's homes. Uh, No doubt there have been some families that loved quarantine. They loved staying home. They loved time with their spouse and with their kids or perhaps with their grandkids if they decided to, to family up. But I was uh, looking on the United Nations webpage and by their best estimates in the three months of intense quarantine, 20% rise in domestic violence, an extra 15 million cases of aggression within the home. And so, again, we could talk about work or we could talk about some, some things that have happened relationally, even at a, a family level. But I have also spoken to a handful of colleagues of mine, of pastors. And when I say this, I'm not referencing any conversation with Billy or with Ben or with Chad or some of the leaders in the CF communities. But in talking to pastors from my home state, now of Indiana, other pastors who are serving here in Kentucky, as well as pastors across the U.S., uh, nearly every one of them have shared about the heartbreak that they have experienced over the last few months as there has been division in their churches. They've talked about people posting um, some divisive things online that uh, caused brothers and sisters to be offended They talked about a tension that arose because of people's responses or their convictions about um, what medicine would be appropriate or when or masks would be appropriate. They talked about having people all of a sudden with next to no warning, uh, just severing long term relationships, pulling out of home fellowships, even leaving their churches all of a sudden and experiencing great disunity. So having not spent a lot of time here in Kentucky or with these two bodies recently, it would be too much to say that I know exactly the sorts of things that that these bodies are encountering. However, I think that we are in a cultural moment and Christians at large are facing some unique elements and even some forces that are pulling us away because we know that we have the enemy who is seizing every opportunity 
to surface accusation against the brethren. He is the accuser. That's what he does. And he loves to come and sow division, disunity, bitterness, hostility, to pull away from the good work that God wants to do in relationships and even in the church. So uh, knowing that I kind of had a bit of uh, an open slate on what to speak about tonight, I thought it would be timely and helpful to talk about the theme of unity. Now, having spent a lot of time over the last 10 years plus getting to know the CF churches, having profound love and respect for the values of the congregations and knowing the heart and the DNA of, of you, I know that unity is one of your primary values. I mean, there's knowing God, there's fatherhood, there's unity, there's relationships. This is what y'all do. So I know that a wonderful foundation for, for decades, for some of you, for years, for others, and maybe just for a handful of months for some newer folks, a wonderful foundation for unity has been laid in the past. I think tonight what I'd like to do is just provide a bit of a review, maybe an overview of unity and perhaps because of the, the moment that we're in, there might be some unique or some specific things that the Holy Spirit highlights in your life or for your family or that will surface in conversations in your home fellowship groups later on this week that might be relevant for, uh, for your application, for your worship, and for your relationships. So that's, that's my hope and prayer. So a few things I'd like to say about unity. The first, and this is just real simple, and because I'm an old school preacher, I'm going to alliterate all of these. If you're taking notes, uh, the first thing to really say about unity is the priority of unity. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them with me to John chapter 11. Excuse me, I'll go to John chapter 17. John 17, and that's a passage where Jesus is offering his high priestly prayer. This is the last night of his life. This prayer has three distinct sections to it. And for the first several verses, Jesus is praying for himself and preparing his own heart for what will happen in the coming hours. And he prays and he, he, he knows that he's getting ready to have one of his closest friends betray him. The rest of the disciples abandon him. He's getting ready to be falsely accused by his Jewish brethren to be mocked, stripped naked, executed by the Romans. And he just prays for his own heart in this moment, getting ready to lay his life down before God for mankind. Then he turns his attention to his disciples and he prays for, for his father to protect them during a crucible hour of testing. He prays for their strength. He prays even for their joy, he prays for their sanctification and ultimately for their effectiveness in taking the message that he instilled in them for those three years onto the world. And after praying for his own heart and then praying for his disciples, he turns his attention and of all people, he prays for us. He prays for you and for me. He prays specifically for all those who would come to believe in him through the message of his disciples. So on the last night of his life, as Jesus is bringing his, his deepest desires before his heavenly father, of all things, Jesus decided to pray for us and he centered his prayers around unity. 
So it would not be too much to simply say unity is a great priority. I'd like to start reading from verse 20. Jesus, in his prayer, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. Not just for the disciples, that is. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And what is his prayer? That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. So again, knowing that this is the the essence of Jesus' heart on the last night of his life and his primary, the central thrust of this intercession is for you and for me and for our unity There's no doubt, no question, no second thought about the priority of unity in the heart of Jesus. And so my question to you tonight is, how important is unity to you? There's not a person here, no man or woman, most of these children wouldn't even debate how important unity was to Jesus. So, how important is unity to to you. And not just the concept of unity, not just reflecting on unity and knowing that it's inherently better than disunity, but really living with one another in a united way, worshiping with one another in a united way, witnessing to this the central part of Indiana in a united way. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And what just stands out to me as I was reading that verse is that we were not told to give marginal effort. We were not told to give significant effort. We were told to make every effort. And so in speaking of relationships with other Christians, God simply does not give us permission to write one another off. And, you know, in this community, I'm sure you wouldn't write one another off, but God doesn't give us permission to emotionally distance ourselves from people just because of certain qualities, certain attributes, certain interactions that may not have been to your preference. He doesn't give us the freedom just to check out of our home groups or to harbor ill will or to or contempt doesn't give us permission to just up and leave our our church based upon a preference-based decision. Now, of course, there might be times that in God's wisdom, he would call us to transition in a relationship or transition in a church. That indeed can happen, but it should never happen until we have made every possible effort to maintain unity. And what I have been observing recently, again, I'm not even going to speak macro about the last, you know, number of years, just what I have seen over the last number of months. I've seen a lot of relationships weaken or even become severed 
relationships with individual friends, relationships in small groups, and even relationships with a person's church. And seldom, as I have been able to observe those severings, has it become clear and evident that every effort was made to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we know that Jesus prioritizes unity and we have this command to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So with it being established that unity is a great priority, I think it would also behoove us to look at some of the pathways that Jesus gave us for unity. So if you're looking to write down your second point, it's the pathway that's next. And I want to highlight two different sections that Jesus uh, highlights in, in the Gospel of Matthew. The first was, one is in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And it's verses 23 and 24. And in this section, Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, here's what you're supposed to do. It's really simple. Just drop your gift. Leave it right where it's at. Go home. Be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Now, that seems like a pretty significant statement. I mean, you can tell the, the priority that's being given to, to unity there. But for us, we have a harder time appreciating the magnitude of, of the command. Because when we come to church, we get in the car, we drive anywhere from five to maybe 25, 30 minutes. And we do our worship. We get in the car, we go back home. Jesus is speaking in and around the area of the Sea of Galilee. He's speaking to people who lived probably in Capernaum or maybe they had walked a number of miles from Nazareth or they were, you know, there in Cana. He's talking to people who when they go to the temple to offer their gift, which they did during, you know, the primary festivals of the year. We're talking about a, a 75, 80 mile jaunt. We're talking about a three day journey down. And a three-day journey back. So now imagine you have uh, taken a full week off work. You have walked 75 miles. Just to help us realize that let's just imagine we've walked all the way up to Cincinnati. You're right there. You're in the temple. You're getting ready to have that profound moment of surrender and offering unto the Lord. And then your heart gets pricked. And you're mindful that your brother or sister has something against you. And Jesus doesn't say, well, if it's a small thing, don't worry about it. He doesn't say, uh, if, if they've just misperceived your intentions and really you're in the clear, don't do anything about it. He just says, if your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there. Walk three days back home get reconciled, walk three days back to Jerusalem and having been united with your brother or sister, then come and have that expression of unity with God. All that to say, what's a pathway for unity? Well, the pathway is really clear, I believe. If you become aware that your brother or sister has something against you, have a conversation. Conversations have an incredible way of taking people on separate pages and bringing them onto the same page. Where there was misunderstanding, bringing understanding. And oftentimes where there was hostility, 
bringing about reconciliation. So the first passage tells us that if your brother or sister has something against you, small or big, your fault or not your fault, you should take the initiative and go and seek reconciliation. And that should take priority over your individual uh, connection with the Lord through your offerings and your songs and the praise that you might want to bring for the edification of your own soul. Now, the next passage comes in Matthew 18. So we're going to skip to uh, you know 13 chapters ahead. And Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So now we have an idea of the shoe being on the other foot. It's not the sense that another person has that you have violated them or offended them. Now you become aware of a violation in their life. And again, we're not told if it's no big deal, if you can just decide to write it off, if you can assume the best. If you become aware of something, you're supposed to go and point it out and do it in a private matter. So neither of these passages allow for passivity. They don't allow us to stew on something for months or for years as we harbor resentment or just ill reflections on another person. They encourage us promptly, right away, to just go and have a conversation. Now, this doesn't tell us you're supposed to wait for them. Whether you find out that... uh, that they have an offense against you, or you're mindful that there might be an offense in their life, you're supposed to take the initiative. You're supposed to have a conversation. And sometimes those conversations bring about incredible fruit right away. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you, you get to talk, and you get to share your concerns or hear their concerns, and though you hopefully come to understanding, you're not in agreement right away. Well, there should be no pressure or great concern over that. You can give things a little bit of time. You could commit to taking a handful of days or even weeks and praying and sleeping on things and just in the course of reflection with the help of the Holy Spirit, hopefully come to agreement. But if the two of you don't get an agreement, no big deal. We know right what to do. Just bring in a few other brothers or sisters in Christ into the the, the disagreement. Maybe their wisdom, maybe their perspective, maybe the plethora of their lifelong experiences we're able to help you. If that doesn't work, no big deal. Jesus says just bring in some of the leaders of the church. And I know that in this context, if even bringing in the leaders of your church doesn't help, there are leaders of other churches that would be more of a neutral party that can come in. All that to say, we know there is a priority for unity. Jesus gives us the pathway. The pathway Anytime there's something that that seems wrong, there's an offense, there's a concern, initiate a conversation, go and talk with one another and give it time. If time and prayer and a conversation doesn't bring it about, just include some other wise people who walk with the Holy Spirit to help you come to unity. Now, there have been a number of times in my life that I have observed as a distant a witness, and a good number of times that I have participated in actively myself, where an offense was made by a certain party or multiple parties, where a conversation was had, and where even more people were brought in, but we did not get united, or they were not able to come to agreement. And I don't know if you've ever been there, 
But I think that's an experience that a good number of Christians have had. You know unity matters to God. You know the priority. You know the pathway. And you've tried your best to walk it. But you're still not united. So I think that it is pivotal that we talk more about not simply the priority and the pathway for unity, but the posture that is required for unity. So that will be your third point as you're following along. What does God tell us about the posture for unity? I was reading a book on an unrelated subject matter just yesterday for a class that I'm taking. And the author was talking about the difference between gestures and postures. And he was saying, you know, a gesture is a one-time action. Like several of y'all, as I've been talking, have gestured to me with a head nod. And it's a one-time action indicating that you understand what I'm saying and you're tracking along with it, at least to an extent. Uh, you might see someone across the room, they, you know, they're walking through the door. And so your gesture is to smile, maybe to stand up, to go give them a hug. It's a one-time action. That's a gesture. But a posture is a perpetual disposition that, that shapes and influences your uh, your entire demeanor. I have a sister-in-law over here that's ballerina, a cousin-in-law over here that also has spent hours and hours for for years and years of their life dancing and teaching people to dance. And so when they walk, they walk with a different posture than Uncle Brent. <laughs> right? That's fair to say. You if you watched uh, someone who spent a lot of time in the equestrian community riding horses. You've maybe seen piano teachers who sit at a bench for eight hours a day. Their posture is pristine. They have trained themselves hour upon hour, day upon day, month upon month, year upon year to hold their body in a certain way. And it shapes them even when they're not playing the piano or riding a horse or in a studio. Well, what about having not just a gesture toward humility? A nice one-off expression that, oh yeah, I think unity matters. But having a posture, a lifelong quality trait that facilitates unity to the greatest extent possible in your life and in your relationships. So there are a lot of wonderful passages that might describe the qualities of the posture for unity. But I think that two that would be worth a little closer look would be Matthew 5, 3 through 12, and Colossians 3, verse 12. So in Matthew 5, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins this great sermon by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn. For they'll be comforted. And blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful. The merciful will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you could look at any one of those Beatitudes 
and turn it into an entire sermon. But if you take them together and you just think about what it means to be poor in spirit, to be meek, to humble, to, to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not to be vindicated, not to be proved right, but to be righteous through and through, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be a peacemaker. That sort of posture sets the condition for you to be able to come to deep unity with others in your life. Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, here's how you are to clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, again, any one of those words could be extrapolated and you can talk for 20 or 30 minutes on it. But think about the overall posture of a person's heart who has actually done what Paul has told us to do. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Think about any relationship that you're in presently that has some division, that has some tension, some frustration, maybe even hostility. Or perhaps think about a time previously in your life where you experienced that. What difference would be made today or could have been made in the past if those words described your posture? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. All too often, Christians know the priority of unity. They're willing to summon the, the fortitude to go and have a conversation but they don't do the important work of posturing their heart and their demeanor toward their brother and sister in Christ in this pivotal way. And this has to be done if unity is going to come from your knowledge that unity is a priority and from your courage to go and have a conversation. You just know it and you just go do it. Often you'll end up in the same place you're at before or even further away. But if you have this posture for humility, well, the ground is fertile for God to do great work. And that we really have to cry out to him to do this work in us. Because on our own, those are not the words that describe the human flesh. Typically, we are not compassionate towards those we're in opposition to. We are calloused. We're not kind. We have the tendency of being rude. We're not humble. We're proud. That's, that's human nature. So we have to cry out to God to prepare our hearts, to give us the posture that will allow the priority of unity to actually be realized. So those are your three points, and typically pastors leave it at three points unless your name is Chad Grissom. But uh, I'm going to add one more to to this, and it's uh, like a, a, it's a it's a double. So the the primary thing I want to highlight here is the purpose of our unity. I want to talk about the purpose of our unity. But in Scripture, there are two predominant purposes that are highlighted. There's more than just those two, but these two are really key. And this is 
great motivation for us as we think about laboring for unity, crying out to God for unity, working with one another for unity. And the first purpose is this. The purpose of our unity is to reflect God's unity. The purpose of our unity is to reflect God's unity. So we don't do it just because it makes us feel better, just because it's pragmatic. We do it because it's faithful to the God who has called us unto himself. Just to remind you of some of the, the statements that Jesus made in that prayer from John 17, he says, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So Jesus is reflecting upon his relationship with the Father where there's deep unity. And he says, I want them to be one, just like we're one. He says later on, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one just as we are one. We are to be united with one another to reflect the unity that exists within God. So, sometimes we can think that unity is a priority and we know we're supposed to do it, but we fail to see how essential this is, not just to the heart of God, but to the very character the, the essence, the nature of God. This is something that is truly distinct to Christians. This is not something that's emphasized or even uh, spoken of at all in any other religion on the planet. There are a lot of other religions that believe that there are a plurality of gods. There's a handful of other religions that believe that there is just one God. There is no other religion in the world that believes that there is one God who exists as three persons. That God is entirely united, but that united within himself, there is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So that for all of eternity, there has been love. For all of eternity, there has been unity. For all of eternity, there have been these relationships with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existing with the same heart the same dream, the same goals. That is at the bedrock of Christian theology. And as we try to bring God the worship that he is worthy of and live lives that he is worthy of, if, if we have a lack of unity in our church, a lack of unity in our relationships, we don't have a posture or disposition that allows for unity in our own hearts, we are contradicting the fundamental reality of the universe and running against the essence of God's very nature. So it's not just unity feels better. We don't like feeling that awkwardness in a room. That's weird. That's not what we're going for. It's not just we should be nice to one another. We want to have our, our worship be sincere and our lives run in agreement with the character of God and the, the universe that he created. So, in addition to the purpose of our unity being to reflect God's unity, the, the second component is the purpose of our unity is to advance God's kingdom. To advance God's kingdom. And we could easily think of a handful of examples of showing the difference of impact when people are united compared to when they're divided. 
So we could think about what happens on a football team if a quarterback and a wide receiver are not united. If the quarterback calls a play, but the wide receiver mishears him, or they believe that that play is calling for the receiver to run a different route, then it's either going to be an incompletion at best or an interception at worst. But if they're on the same page, hopefully it's a completion, maybe a first down, maybe a touchdown. We can think about, think about this in the corporate space. Some of you have worked for corporations where the board and the CEO have a different vision than functionally is happening at the managerial level or the frontline level. And oftentimes there is the waste of resources, sideways energy, and typically you churn through your high quality people and you end up with uh, diminishing revenue. Conversely, hopefully you know what it's like to work at a corporation from the top down, everyone has the same vision. Everyone knows the goal of the organization and the company. And there's synergy, there's alignment, there's teamwork, and the numbers are typically up and to the right. So we could think about those examples. We could think about what it's like when a mother and a father are united in a home or when they're at odds with one another. When a husband and a wife are at odds with one another, look at the kids. It always filters down and there's tension and hostility between Sally and Susie and Steve. It always happens. You walk in that house and you can typically feel the unhealth. But conversely, you find a husband and a wife that are in deep love with one another. They walk in profound unity together as one flesh, just like God created and designed. Almost always you will see unity trickle down to Sally and Susie and Steve. You can walk in that home and feel the warmth. We understand what, what that's like to have agreement, to have deep unity. What about as a church? What about unity as we are aligning our lives, our resources, leveraging all of our influence to bring God glory and to draw people unto Christ as he is lifted high? What's the difference of being loosely connected with our witness and our service and being profoundly united? Well, I have been uh, keeping my left hand in my pocket. I'm a bit of a fiddler. I'm also a hunter, and I brought uh, two different shotgun shells with me today. I don't know if there are any other bird hunters here, but September 1st was opening of bird season, specifically dove season. So I was out with J.P. Barlow on his family farm and uh, shooting doves on September 1st. Now, when you dove hunt, use this shell right here. This is a two and three quarters length shell. It has seven and a half shot in it. Now, in this shell, there's a whole bunch of small BP, BBs up here, and there's some powder back here. And I put this in my shotgun. Anyone want to guess how many uh, small little pellets are in this shell? A lot. That's a good guess. <laughs> there's uh, 396 small little pellets in this shell. This is seven and a half. You can even get smaller and get to 600 or 700 if you wanted. But this is the right mix of size of shell to create the right spread to knock down a dove anywhere from 35 to 40 yards away. And if you're a great shot like JP, maybe 60 or 65 yards away. This is great for dove hunting because all those little BBs, they create a pattern 
and they spread out like this so that, you know, you don't have to be precise with a bird that's moving 40 miles an hour and going up and down. So a nice, a nice solid spread. Well, in here is a slug. And instead of having 396 little BBs, there is one solid hunk of metal. You would not use this to take out a dove. But with what's in this, you can knock down a deer as far as 150 yards away. So when you think about the difference, these shells are the exact same size. You think about the difference of what's in it and what it's intended to do. And you know, in the CF community, you have, I don't know, it's 396 people, but you have hundreds of folks. And if all you did was say, you know, we have a similar vision, we have a similar heart, and we're just gonna try to do good things together as united as we can be, you're gonna have a pretty decent spread and you'll be able to accomplish some great things. But if there were to be deep unity, profound alignment and agreement. You really had the same heart working towards the exact same goals and your, your witness and your worship was so similar. The strength of your impact would be incomparable. I know, you know, these communities fairly well. I don't think you guys are going to be going in 360 different directions. Of course, you're going to be pretty united. But what would it look like increasingly to take the size of that spread and narrow it and narrow it so the strength of your impact as you try to advance the kingdom of God increases exponentially? So we need to know the priority of worship, embrace the pathway for worship. Even beyond that, we have to have the posture for worship and we should know the purpose for it. We want our lives to be congruent with the character of God. We want our worship to be worthy of him. And we want our witness to truly advance the kingdom, not just in a broad general way with a really, really widespread. We want to be able to do profound and significant work. And our deep unity is required for that. Now, my best guess is I have not taught you anything new tonight. And I think that's okay. Because with unity, this is one of those th themes that needs to be brought up again and again so that we can be reminded of small little things that are going on or even some larger things we've been holding on to for a while and be encouraged to let the Holy Spirit work in us and work in our relationships and work in our church so we can be united. And I'll just leave you with what Jesus says in John 13 Verse 17, he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. I'll say a prayer over these churches. God, thank you for the good and wonderful work that you have done in these communities. Uh, the profound way that they love you and try to live their lives for you. And so we just want to, to pray deep unity over each relationship, over each family, over these churches, over the relationships they have with the other churches in the community. God, 
as your people, we want to be united in all that we do. Come and do the work in our hearts that's necessary to make that a reality. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Um, I want to give sort of an application for ECF, but LCF, you can receive this if you want as well. Our theme this month for this open month of teachings, and this is so perfect, Dan, um, is, is the cross. And tonight I was going to talk about, you know, after last week, I felt like, you know, we've, I really need to dive into what this looks like, what it looks like to be a people of the cross. And this is where we need to be. This is, this is where we learn how to take up our cross. Um, like Dan said, this is nothing new to us. And I don't know how many of you have seen our little relationship chart and there's honesty and it's really the pathway that he was talking about. It's Matthew 18. And often when we draw that little chart, which has been drawn on so many napkins and so many Paneras throughout Lexington, we put a cross in the middle. And this work of this work of unity, and it and it is work. And I, I really appreciate, and what I want to underscore is what Dan said about Jesus does not give us permission to make some effort and then check out emotionally. We are to make every effort. And that's not like a, that's not a strident thing to call the people of God to. Because Jesus made every effort to make unity possible. And it comes back to the cross. He was praying for unity as he himself was going to take up his cross to make the unity possible. And so it's not make every effort so you measure up. It's make every effort because Jesus has made more effort than you could possibly make. And he didn't need to. He, he, he did not struggle with your relationships the way you do. He was not selfish in your relationships the way you are. But he still took that failure on. And undid it so that you could face those relationships, those uh, areas of failure and weakness, those temptations to check out so that you could face those and take up your cross and deny yourself and go through to the other side. And if you've seen the napkin chart, you know what sits on the other side of the cross is unity and trust. But it's earned by effort, but not human effort. It's the effort of Jesus as we take up our cross with him. So I want to call us back ECF. I want to call us back to the cross. This is this is cross month for us. And this is an, a perfect place to start in, in asking the question, well, what does the cross look like in my life? I'm a wealthy, middle-class American. What does the cross look like in my life? Well, check your relationships. Check the unity that you share with the people around you. 
And there's something in you, I guarantee you, there is something in you that needs to die in order for that relationship to mature in the way that it needs to and to deepen in the way that it needs to and should. For the, for the people to see God's glory and for the kingdom to advance. Something in us needs to die in a relationship so that that can unleash the kingdom uh, into the world through that relationship. So I just want to apply, this is a perfect word for us. This is from God, ECF, and I'm sure LCF can say a few amens as well. Um, this is the cross. This is how we take up our cross. Um, that's <laughs> right on for LCF. Um, so I want Ben to close us in prayer tonight. I just wanted to mention two other things, though. Just let ECF know a little bit about uh, some of the things that we've been talking about at LCF. Give you guys a picture into some things that we've been talking about unity and remind us, LCF, a couple of things. We're getting together uh, every fourth or fifth meeting, and we are lifting up all of the churches in Lexington. And we are, you know, we're having individual members of the church come up to the front and pray for one of the churches in our city. And we're doing that because we're crying out to God for unity yes. uh, in our in our city, in central Kentucky. So that's coming up. want to keep reminding us to do that. Uh, let your heart cultivate that. Uh, then second, a teaching, you know, just from a couple weeks ago, Dan talked about the kind of the big things that are going on in the world right now. And if your heart's been captured by unity, by what God can do, by bringing people together, your heart is hurting because of what's going on. But one of the things we talked about is the solution is not to get out of whack by everything that's going on, but it's like what Ben was talking about. The solution is us being unified with one another here in our bodies that God has given us to. Not to solve everything that's going on, but to love the people around us, allow Jesus to supernaturally unify us and allow him to use that to bless the people around us. And that how that is the only way through Jesus Christ Amen. that unity on a grand scale is going to happen. So, Ben, would you just lead us in prayer? Yeah. I'm stand with you as yep. you pray. Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy. Uh, because no one else was able uh, to do the work that you did to undo the disunity and the hatred that had uh, destroyed uh, your sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took on flesh. You took on weakness. You took on the form of a servant. And uh, Lord, you made every effort. You embraced the cross. Lord, you came down into the mess that we made. And Lord, you bore our sins and you bore our, uh, our uh, inability to relate to one another. And you uh, have brought us through the cross and you have nailed mm. all enmity Hallelujah. to the cross. Yes, God. And Lord, you are the great uniter. Mm-hmm. All things are summed up in you. All things are united in you. And we grow up, Lord, we are to, you say, we are to grow up in every way into you who are the head. Mm-hmm. And it's from you that we have our unity, Lord. Yes, God. Yes, Father 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would unite us with the people closest with us. Do a complete work, Lord. Mm -hmm. But don't stop there. Lord, work out from there. Unite our churches. Mm -hmm. Unite our, our CF churches together, Lord. We, we need, uh, as we grow, we need to, yes, to stay unified. And Lord, through us, do a work in this city. Through our city, do a work in the state. Yes, God. And through the state, Lord, do a work in our nation and the world. Yes, Father. But Lord, help us not to skip steps. Lord Jesus, you didn't skip any steps in unity. Mm -hmm. You didn't skip any sacrifice. And so, Lord, help us to embrace our cross every day. Yes, God. And lead us into that life, Lord. And lead us out of the grave and into resurrection Hallelujah. as yes, we do God. that, Lord. Yes, God. And that the world would see and that death is not the end, that the cross is not the end. It is the door uh, to the resurrection life. And Lord, send us forth from here in the power of the resurrection life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.